if you have a doctor and you bring this information to them and their response is, well, I don't know what this is or I don't have time to look into it, find another doctor. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. One of the things that will be looked upon by the future in this moment as a precipitous shift is the end of various forms of psychoactive prohibition, the uh, cognitive liberty revolution, the undoing of a temporary modern glitch in the human social operating system that forbade us from exploring with our consciousness. And a big, huge piece of this shift is actually not a human rights argument to cognitive liberty, but a growing body of medical research data, including some very compelling genetic and genomic research that are clearing up some long-standing misapprehensions of the nature and activity of various mind-altering substances in the body and how people react to them differently. Yeah, we're moving past an age where we can suggest one universal approach to medicine or nutrition to an age where we have the ability to tailor specific treatments and lifestyles for people based on the huge spectrum of human diversity. One of my favorite people to talk about this stuff with is my friend David Krantz, a personal nutrition and genetics coach based out of Asheville, North Carolina. David was recently in town with me in Austin for the Body Hacking Conference, where he presented on the current state of genetics research with respect to cannabis in particular, and how people with different gene variants respond so very differently to this very ancient plant with a very long-standing and intimate relationship with the human species. Whether you've had a positive, negative, or no experience with cannabis in the past, I think you'll find this episode interesting as an example of the new kinds of scientific inquiry and approaches to personalized medicine based on genetic analysis that we're all moving into right now and will probably profoundly change the lives of the everyday person in the years to come. A kind of a deconstruction of the modern allopathic medical paradigm. So buckle up for this fabulous conversation with David Krantz. But first... I want to take a moment to thank the 55 people who have reviewed Future Fossils podcast on iTunes. It is the single best way to help other people find and enjoy this show. I love reading your reviews. They are colorful, bizarre, and fabulous, and it costs absolutely nothing. So if you haven't already and you have a moment, please roll over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review Future Fossils. It means a lot to me and a lot to all of the people that you're helping to inform and entertain and inspire. Also, a big shout out to this week's new Patreon supporters, Nick Mann, and also Andrew Perrine, who edited his pledge considerably higher this week. Thank you, Andrew, also. Folks, this show takes between four and seven hours an episode to produce not to mention all of the time I spend finding and sharing interesting future news and other stuff in the Future Fossils Facebook group. And then, of course, the maintenance, the outreach, the upkeep, paying for podcast syndication, etc. I do it out of love. It's a gift. It's an act of service. It's a tree I'm planting with no expectations that I'll ever get to eat the fruit. But... If you find value in this program and you have the means, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and leave $2, $5 a month. I've started putting up additional unreleased episodes, early releases, private subscriber-only episodes. There's a ton of that material up on there right now. I've started making even more of it available to patrons at the $5 level and up. Even if you're dead broke... You probably have a phone, because everyone does these days. And you can go to Patreon and download a ton of my music and my writing and art and so on there for free. 
And also, I am always on the hunt for cool new guests. If you have a suggestion or a topic you'd like to hear explored on the show, send me an email, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And that's that, folks. Thanks for bearing through the business. Now get comfortable for this great discussion with David Krantz. Awesome, dude. How you doing? I'm doing well. Am I coming through on, on your end of things? Perfectly. Okay. You have a rare excellence in your audio setup there, former Moog employee. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I figured I, you know, it's the least I can do to contribute to the quality of, of the podcast besides the things I guess I'm going to say. But Yeah. Uh, well, since the last time we spoke, you've become kind of a rock star, at least according to your boss, who I, I saw in, <laughs> in Austin last week. And he just telling me you're doing some exceedingly interesting genetics research involving cannabis. And I know that you sent me information about the web seminar that you just taught about this topic, but I haven't had a chance to look at it. So, which is good because otherwise I might come into this with like 200 level questions and uh -huh. we would lose the opportunity to introduce all of our listeners to the basics about this, how you got into it. And, and so where would you start us? Okay. Well, first of all, that's great that I have reviews coming from an employer. You know, that's always, I feel like the measure of, uh, <laughs> of reality of someone that is, you know, kind of hierarchical superior speaks well of you. So I appreciate that. And, and that feedback, you know, to, to be clear, the, none of the research that I'm doing is my research. I'm basically acting as an aggregator here and, and kind of being a human literature review, um, and kind of acting as a bridge between the inane science jargon and what most people's ability to understand things is. And, you know, with cannabis, I really haven't even dig too far into the epigenetics of it. I've been mostly looking at the nuclear genome and different SNPs in it and how that influences people's response. And then when you add epigenetics on top of that, that makes for, you know, some really interesting stuff. And it's, it's really what I found is, you know, I'm getting a lot of questions that are pertaining to that. And it's kind of my next you know, area that I really want to dig into. A lot of people have been asking me, you know, what, what would account for the fact that, you know, I used to smoke all the time and then I quit for a year and I came back to it and have this extreme anxiety. And, you know, when you look at the, the balance of endocannabinoids in the body, uh, it really paints this picture of this homeostatic system that when you inject these exogenous, you know, external chemicals that are very similar to, you know, the ones we have in our body and, um, kind of mimic them in a way and activate the same receptors it's can i think it can set us up for some really interesting things where the body kind of rebounds in the opposite direction and, and some people can get hypersensitized and that's really where the epigenetic piece comes in so I'm, I'm really excited to explore that but just in general a lot of what i've been looking at is um going through the research and looking at the pharmacogenetic studies on cannabis which they're they're kind of few and far between just because of the research climate you know, but there's some really cool studies on, like, say, for example, this enzyme called CYP2C9. It's a liver enzyme that breaks down THC. And there's certain people who have, depending on your variant, uh, up to a threefold difference in your ability to break down THC. And what that means for people is some people are way more sensitive, especially to edibles, because it's very present in the GI tract. So, you know, when you smoke it, it, it has a much, it doesn't have much time to come into contact with that enzyme before it comes active. But when you eat it, it really makes a huge difference. So this one particular study, they, they gave people 15 milligrams of oral THC and stratified them based on their genotype, whether they were a fast or slow metabolizer. And what they found is the people that were slow metabolizers had three times the THC on average in their body over, I think it was, they were looking at, I mean, really they were looking at a three-day period but within that first hour first two hours it was like real the levels are just very different and of course the subjective reporting about how high those people felt they're using kind of a drowsiness score 
And the people that were slow metabolizers reported, you know, pretty similar, almost exact same two to three times the amount of drowsiness from THC and longer duration. And interesting, what's really interesting to me in the study is that they also, that that drowsiness level came down for those people after about 48 hours. And then on the third day, it spiked back up. So because of that, what something residual in there, you know, there's a couple other metabolites of THC that that impacts, especially the THCCOH metabolite, which is what uh, gets looked for on drug tests in urine tests. So there's a inherent difference in your ability to pass a drug test depending on what you know. Variant I was going to ask that. Yeah, it seems like I, I definitely you know I, I remember even before I started smoking, I had a friend who told me way back in the day that he just couldn't do it because Mm -hmm. he found that it would keep him in a fog for days afterwards. And in this like dawn age of pre-genetic literacy, I saw that and I was like, this guy is like a special class of person who's just more aware of his body than my other friends are. And, you know, later on when I did not feel that fog for three days afterwards, I thought that maybe I was just dumb. You know, like I'm just always in a fog. I don't realize, but you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I don't want to zoom out too far too soon, but it is funny how this research seems to shed light on personal variation in these, you know, all of these microscopic ways that would seem to liberate us from judgments of ourselves, judgments of other people that we've made that, you know, based on a faulty assumption of our chemical similarity. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's spot on. And I think that's really kind of what lies at the crux of this. And, and one of the reasons why I find it so fascinating, you know, I can remember when I was 15, pressuring my girlfriend at the time to smoke weed with me and her telling me, like, I just don't like the way it feels. And me just, you know, not understanding that. I don't believe you. I just, I didn't believe them. And I was the kid that wanted everyone to smoke weed with me because it worked so well for me. And now looking, you know, at this research and understanding it, you know, from an individual genetic perspective, I'm like, oh, crap, I was was totally not, you know, uh, they were right. They knew their bodies way better than I did, of course. Um, But, you know, you get into, and and to be clear, you know, it's like that one genetic variation has that effect. But when you, there's so many things that affect it. And it's kind of, it kind of does it a disservice to to isolate it. Uh, And, you know, you can stack all these other things uh, on top of that. But yeah, it really gives credibility to the idea that you can really only know your own experience and having compassion for what other people feel in the way that they respond to things, especially things like psychoactives, where it's such a personal experience, uh, it, it kind of opens up this whole new world of understanding it. Just, just to give you another example, there's a, there's a gene called COMT. That's a very, very well-studied gene because it, it breaks down dopamine. So it's very you know important for everything that dopamine does, which is a lot of things. And with cannabis, what they found is that with one variant, it heavily affects short-term memory related to cannabis. So there's one variant that is affected very little in the short-term memory tests. I think there's like an 11% drop versus a 40% drop in efficiency on like what they call the two-back test, where you're shown a series of pictures or symbols, and you have to remember which one you were shown two times ago. Some people, depending on their COMT variant, are going to lose their keys all the time when they smoke weed versus, you know, someone where it doesn't really affect them. So and there's a whole bunch of other little things like that, that when you kind of piece them together, you get this this feeling of like, oh, yeah, there's definitely some people that probably shouldn't smoke weed. Interesting, because, um, you know, I think about this. I had Carrie Welch on the show, who's a philosopher of time, and she was talking about the neurochemistry of time perception mm-hmm. and how uh, it has a lot to do with the amount of dopamine in the brain. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the variance in dopamine release over the lifespan of a human being changes. And so when people report that time is speeding up as we get older, that's correlated with a decrease in the dopamine levels. And she was saying that this is related to ADHD. And, and then also, uh, I forget the disorder in that in the film, The uh, Awakenings, where people were just, you know, catatonic and unresponsive. And it turned out that they were actually conscious, but that they had such low dopamine levels in their brain that they were not experiencing the passage of time 
at oh, all. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, or I, I think I, I keep trying to remember. It's, I, I might be getting this backwards, but it's like they may have had too much or something because it was like the ADHD thing is is a dopamine imbalance, so that time feels like it's crawling to those people. And so I think about that with the COMT variant and how like some people are they completely lose their sense of time when they're smoking weed, and other people don't. And those are the people yeah. who don't lose their keys, apparently, you know? So I- <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a few other studies that kind of look at, at similar stuff. And I want to come back to that notion about perception of time. It was actually interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about that this morning uh, with myself and just obviously the show is about, you know, our, our role in time. And, and I was thinking about, well, what is, what allows people to expand their, their perception beyond, because I was listening to your interview with Daniel Schmachtenberger uh, a couple days ago, and you brought up in that conversation, you know, what are the things that are going to allow people to have more agency over their ability to see these longer time spans? And, um, let me, let me come back to that. Yeah. But just in terms of people's perception and these time, these the time dilation things that happen when, with cannabis, there's another study that looks at this gene called ATK1. And they were studying, essentially, you got to kind of interpret the science jargon on it. But, you know, what they refer to as psychedomimetic effects of cannabis where mimicking psychosis. But right. what that really what that really says is, you know, more psychedelic, more time distortion things happen happening, visuals, that kind of thing. And there, there's a, a variation in that particular gene where one variant experiences less of those factors and the other variant experiences more pretty significantly, statistically significantly. And that gene in particular is also very interesting because they found that it heavily, heavily influences people's likelihood to exacerbate schizophrenic symptoms mm-hmm. uh, with cannabis, like 12 times uh, risk with this one variant. Yeah, it's pretty strong. But the, the weird thing is that people with that quote-unquote risk variant, if they don't smoke weed, they have almost a zero chance of developing, I think they're looking at all psychotic di- diagnoses. So what that's saying is what like there's the really, yeah, so there's really something in the endocannabinoid system that's being either thrown off balance by inputting these these systems and it and what this research, you know, why I find it so valuable and why I'm so interested in it is it expands the conversation to say how can we be more responsible especially in the climate of, you know, legalization and looking at it from a medical perspective, like they're incorporating this type of genetic testing into SSRIs now when they're prescribing it for people. At least, you know, the people that are conscious of this and are aware that you can do this uh, is that some of these genetic tests can predict whether you're going to have a psychotic reaction to SSRIs versus whether it's going to make you feel less, you know, make, make you feel happy. So like we got, I think we got to start doing treating cannabis the same way because if you're, you know, a medical professional and you're, you're thinking about giving, you know, a prescription for cannabis for someone with PTSD, it's really worth looking at that particular gene because it you know, really does help people with PTSD. But I imagine there's also a small percentage of people with that genetic variant that it could throw away off kilter. So kind of looking at this from the perspective of let's be real, not everyone's going to respond in the same way. Not everyone likes it. The people that do like it love it because it's doing something for them innately on a biological level. You know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's also not, you know, let it turn into dogma of, you know, if, if the, everyone smoked. And, and here, here's, this is very reflective of my own kind of personal journey through this, which it's gone from if everyone smoked weed, the world would be a better place to looking at this research, like cannabis works really, really well for some people, but there are certainly people that shouldn't probably ingest it, you know, just like everything here. So I think it just adds another dimension to understanding how this works. And, um, man, I've got so many tangents to go down here. Well, let's, uh, let's pick one, you know, just as a, an interruption here. I think it's interesting that it seems like over the last hundred years with cannabis, we've gone from it being, I think at one point, the second most prescribed medicine in the United States, you know, (laughs) like the end of the 19th century to it being completely off the table to now we've, you know, we're, we're up the spiral and we're seeing, okay, again, like this is a thing that has, has medical value, but there is, I think some value in that medical contextualization of it. And you and I both have firsthand experience of people being uh, completely disrespectful with the very idea of medicine. Like when, when I was living in Colorado in 2011 and cannabis had just gone medically legal and everyone was trumping up these 
health symptoms so that they could get a prescription card and it's just like oh i need my medicine wink wink and it's like that's it's not very helpful you yeah know? <laughs> but i mean yeah it's like, no yeah, no, 100%. And I think there, there's something totally okay with saying, hey, I just like the way it makes me feel. And, you know, it, it, and the other thing looking at it, not to be a, a downer about it, you know, the other thing that this research really shows is that for the people that are attracted to it naturally and have this like, hey, this, this works great, makes me, levels me out, whatever, there's a real biological reason for that too. And you can look at it as medicinal in that way. And it's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like um, it's like the same thing as cheese, right? Like cheese yes. is basically heroin. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of regard it as a food. And so, I mean, th- we could go down that particular rabbit hole of like the food medicine taxonomy and what a bunch of nonsense it is. But I'm happy yeah, to follow well, you well, down one of yours if you'd, like, well, if you'd rather. Just to give you my perspective on that. And, and that's really, you know, what I, what I do in general is is I work mostly with nutrition and that kind of thing for people with these genetic variants. And there's a, there's a gene called APOE that's been a pretty hot topic in in, in everything lately because it, it heavily influences Alzheimer's. And about 25% of the population has the APOE4 variant. And about 60% of people with the APOE4 variant get Alzheimer's. But why don't 40% of those people? And so within the context of having APOE4, eating a high saturated fat diet, 7x is your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Physical activity doubles it again. So are we going to ban saturated fat because it, you know, is going to give 25% of the population Alzheimer's? No, I think we just do the testing and let people understand that, hey, this is a lifestyle factor. This is a risk for you. You can make these choices to, to mitigate the risk. You know, just like if you have the ATK1 variant for cannabis, you know, maybe don't smoke weed, you know, you, if you don't want to throw off your neurochemistry in a way that's going to be detrimental for the rest of your life. But isn't, so, isn't 23andMe still like a hundred bucks? Like, I, I, I mean, this, this world, this like post prohibition world where, you know, we've, we've adopted a more sensible approach to medicine and nutrition. Doesn't that require a sort of democratization of genes testing and like yeah. the ability of the common person to know well, themselves in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And, and it's coming. And, and that $100 price is down from $1,000, you know, eight years ago. So we're going to see it get get cheaper and cheaper. And, and on an availability perspective, uh, I think it's I think it's definitely a lot more feasible for, for most people to do, uh, especially when you kind of look at it as like, well, that's your information. You're gonna have that for the rest of your life, you know. But yes, yes. And, and that's actually uh, a <laughs> a phrase that I picked out from that interview with Daniel Schmachtenberger was the democratization of healthcare. Mm. I really love that particular phrasing that you use because I think that's the future here. And I kind of see, you know, what I've been doing. I mean, I don't have any formal training in medicine. I'm a, I'm a coach, you know, I do it in a way that, you know, it's non-medical, uh, it's all lifestyle nutrition based, but I feel very qualified to help the people that I'm helping and having the red tape of you either have to be a medical professional or you can't talk about this stuff at all doesn't make sense for where we're going because I can listen to, you know, 2000 hours of podcasts like I did when I was working at Moog and feel like, hey, I'm pretty I, I've really upped my my understanding of some things. And, I, you know, I've acted as this information repository, uh, you know, maybe that could help other people besides, you know, myself. And when you know you look at it from that perspective of and of course you gotta have regulation somewhere along the line. I like I shouldn't be performing surgery on anyone. <laughs> and and, uh, and I'm certainly not trying to do that. But you haven't listened to two thousand hours of surgical podcasts followed by two thousand <laughs> hours true. of surgical residency. Yes, right? that's true. So I mean there should be a way to certify people without accreditation. But that's right. p- probably a different issue. So I'm curious to hear more about the cannabis genetic stuff specifically, yeah. and let's just use this as an opportunity for you to disclose your distillation of that research. Okay, great. Yeah, let's do that. So I kind of want to back up a little bit and just give people more of a firm foundation to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about these genetic variants. Mostly what I'm referring to are studies on SNPs, and SNPs are that stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are essentially, you know, one letter switches in people's DNA in a particular place in a gene. And since 2003, we mapped the human genome. What became very clear was 
well, most of our DNA is exactly the same, and there's this one percent that's different, and we can, you know, find these particular places in the DNA where it differs on a fairly regular basis. You know, these aren't mutations because they're stabilized in the population. And, you know, I think the cutoff is 1%. If it's less than 1% of the population, it's the true mutation. And if it's beyond that, it's a SNP. And so what these studies are looking at, they're either genome-wide association studies or candidate gene studies where they're choosing a specific gene and seeing if the vari- that variation in that one place is causing a difference in, say, you know, the way you metabolize something or a trait and then the genome-wide association studies is kind of more choosing the trait to begin with and then just analyzing all the genes and seeing if there's any differences where they can they can find that has you know statistical significance so when you isolate these SNPs and, and kind of figure out what they do you can reverse engineer sort of metabolic pathways in the body by saying oh yeah you're likely to break down more dopamine here but this dopamine receptor is less sensitive here and the way that this transporter works well you're probably not moving dopamine to the receptor and so you get this picture and build up you build up the system and it really ties in nicely to what you were talking about with Daniel with systems theory actually and you can really tie it to these larger structures of of how all these little things affect each other right and with these cannabis studies most of them are involved in genes that either break down THC or CBD have to do with dopamine reward centers in the brain which there's some really cool studies on that and uh, other things that have to do with neurochemistry, those genes. And, uh, you know, let me, let me just kind of pull up my notes from the presentation. So I'm sure I have a little bit more. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I started this presentation off. I, I did, I did a webinar on this the other day and uh, I started this off just li- reading some sentences from some abstracts from four different studies that did not use genetics and came up with four completely different results. And just as an example, uh, very heavy use of marijuana is associated with persistent decrements in neurocognitive performance, even after 28 days of abstinence. So that was the conclusion from one study. And then on the flip side of that, you have more frequent cannabis use was associated with better performance in attention and working memory tasks. <laughs> Son you know? of a bitch. This is why we need you, David. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well this, this is why I think this approach is so important is because, you know, whenever one, one a study that supports someone's bias comes out, pe- you know, that reinforces that bias. So if you're anti-cannabis, when the uh, the first uh, study results I mentioned come out, you're like, yep, yeah, can- cannabis is bad. Don't do it. Stay away from it. Bad for everyone. And then vice versa. When something, you know, positive comes out, it kind of gets touted blindly in a lot of ways by the for legalization folks, which I am certainly one of those people. But I think taking a more measured approach is actually the way to having a, a real conversation with people on the other side of the aisle, rather than just saying, my results are right, your results are wrong. Uh, and when you add the genetic dimension in, it makes those studies make complete sense why they might have gotten those different results. You know? Yeah, you know, to zoom out and do a little philosophy of science here, this reminds me of a study I read about where they were doing research on plant germination and growth, and they ran the, they they didn't want light to affect the outcome of the experiment, so they ran the whole thing underground. And then they ran it again later and got completely different results. And it was because they didn't understand that there were tidal influences operating on these plants gravitationally, even without exposure to sun and moonlight. And so, like, there's so much to say about experimental design and how what we exclude from the framing of the experiment corrupts our interpretation of the results of the experiment, you know, and when you talk about talking to the people across the aisle, I think about that, the origin of that phrase. And it's like, well, those are your, those are your in-laws, you know, you're at a, (laughs) the aisle is a wedding aisle, you know, and like, ultimately the task of each of us, I think is to remember that we're playing on a larger team now than the team that we're used to. And that, you know, it does require cultural interoperability if we're going to actually make sense of any of this shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's really excellent. And, you know, I, I try to be increasingly self-aware of the way that I feel about people that disagree with me. Um, (laughs) Because I, you know, I try, but, uh, (laughs) 
you know, it, it, it makes sense to, to really put yourself in someone's shoes in this context. If they maybe tried weed once and they had some of the variants that might lead to a negative response, you can see why they might assume that, hey, this this is what it feels like for everyone. This sucks. Like, I, this makes me so anxious and makes me feel like, you know, I just want to eat 30 hamburgers and cry you know or whatever it is whatever their their weird response was uh it's like having empathy for that response leads you to to really understand why there's so much you know diversion and thinking around cannabis and you know again th- these studies kind of just help nullify that personal opinion in favor of a larger globalized perspective of hey you know we can have all these factors and and another thing to point out here is that all of these studies that I'm looking at are mostly being done from an addiction standpoint, mostly mm. being done from a problematic behavior standpoint. So there aren't even any genetic studies on CBD and all of the medical benefits of that yet. Like this is this is the very early stages of this. And when, you know, studies come out that point to, you know, better immune system functioning and a relief of PTSD symptoms and that kind of thing, because they're positive results for cannabis, it really begs the question, well, let's get more specific because we've done it with so many of these other substances, like to just take caffeine, for example, and caffeine is probably the most researched compound on the planet. There's, I mean, thousands and thousands of studies on it. But there was a study that was done in 2006 looking at actually a very similar genetic variant, uh, another cytochrome P450 gene, another liver enzyme that breaks down caffeine. And what they found is that there you have a group of people that are fast caffeine metabolizers, a group of people that are slow caffeine metabolizers. And for the fast metabolizers, drinking more than one cup cup of coffee per day is actually slightly protective against heart attacks slightly protective against uh, hypertension, blood, high blood pressure as well. Please God, but, let that be me. Yeah. <laughs> but for the slow metabolizer group, after you drink more than one cup per day, you kind of increase your risk in proportion to the amount of coffee you drink. So uh, four cups of coffee a day, about four X's your, your risk of a heart attack for these, for these folks. And that's me. I switched to decaf after I learned this. See, that's the real, that's the practical everyday thing. Cause I feel like this, this podcast gets pretty out of hand on a regular basis with the big ideas and it doesn't, you know, I'm really trying to lately and, you know, having you back on the show to talk about this really specifically trying to make this about the practical realities of what it is to be alive at this time and how we can apply this knowledge, you know, cause it's having the knowledge is not enough. It's got to be applied. It's got to become wisdom. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we want to create a culture of wisdom, then, you know, so I'm curious in studying this stuff, like clearly you've had your own genome examined and clearly you're coaching yourself in some way with all of this stuff. So I'm curious on a day to day basis, how does this knowledge actually inform your decisions? What does the feedback loop look like for you in your everyday life? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, a lot of it is, you know, taking this knowledge and making sure that it, it works correctly for me, uh, because it's one thing to find something in a study, and it's another thing to live it and try it. And, and that's part of the reason why, you know, like my boss that you met, Dan, he kind of trained me in a lot of this methodology. Uh, and it came as the result of him working with about 2000 clients over time and picking genes from studies that like matched up actually with the lab results and the things these people were reporting and then kind of throwing out the ones that, you know, either just didn't really work in real life. Uh, maybe the, you know, significance, the statistical significance they reported in the study is just too small or, or, you know, doesn't really apply. But you know, to answer your question, it does create this positive feedback loop when you give your body the things you want to eat that it wants. And I kind of see this knowledge as a bit of a shortcut. You know, I'm sure you've had the experience of standing in the whole foods supplement aisle and being just completely overwhelmed by the impossibility of narrowing down what might be the thing that could help you do whatever you're trying to do with yeah, your, your health and body. PTSD, right? Like, <laughs> How do I know what's good for me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you, and then you have, and so 
you know, in the, the kind of health guru culture, uh, you kind of have the, when one finds something that works really well for them, they sound the trumpets and say, hey, this is the way that it works. Everyone needs to eat a high fat diet because it worked so well for me. I'm just going to use like Dave Asprey as an example, yeah. you know, and his work actually really positively affected me because I happen to be genetically someone that high fat does work well for. But what's very, very clear is that there are certain people that should not be eating that way. But because he had such a positive result with it, he wanted to spread that message with with a lot of vigor. And so it kind of gets lost. The potential for the downsides for some people gets lost with that type of enthusiasm. So you have, you know, I, I don't know what the number is, how many diet books get published per year, but it's some insane number, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of diet books, each one with their own version of what people should eat. And it's just, it's absurd. There's no such thing as the perfect human diet, but it's this information allows people to find the kind of the perfect diet for them, you know, outside of these sort of generalizations. And, you know, for me, like, yeah, I've, I've, I have cut down my caffeine to intake based on that one gene. I've learned why chaga mushrooms make me feel so good. Are, are you familiar with chaga? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not familiar with the chemical mechanics of it. So indulge mm-hmm. me, please. Yeah. So, so the first time I ever tried chaga, I felt like I was high. Like I just got this amazing like burst of bliss. I just felt amazing. Like I wanted to go run around and do all the things, <laughs> you know. Uh, and my wife, Roberta drank the same chaga and was like, yeah, this is fine. I don't, whatever. It's good, I guess. Uh, but you know, she totally didn't have the same result. And maybe a year or so later after I looked at both of our genetics together, so, so to back up, one of the big things in chaga is a, is a molecule called superoxide dismutase, which is an antioxidant that your body produces to kind of clean up the mess that your mitochondria makes when it produces energy because mitochondria is constantly producing oxidants which serve a signaling role in some ways but when they get out of hand that's where you get the cellular damage from and the superoxide dismutase kind of deactivates some of those harmful compounds you you create as this natural byproduct now chaga has super super high amounts of superoxide dismutase in it and it's pretty rare to find it in the plant world i think the other thing that has a lot of it is uh, marine phytoplankton interestingly enough Hmm. but uh so the first and i happen to have a gene that i make about 30 percent less sod than the other variant of this which roberta has so her levels of sod were probably higher to begin with mine were lower and so when i tried chaga i just i got this energy boost you know I really, really felt it. And so there's a number of other little tiny idiosyncratic things like that, that uh, it's really helped explain why I've responded to certain substances in some ways and given me kind of a, a, a guide to try some new things, you know? Damn, that's fascinating. So you must, I know that this is, you know, you're not a paid advocate, I'm sure, but like, I'd be curious to know which gene testing services you would recommend to people. And, and like how people, how you would advise people to get into this world mm-hmm. and, and start educating themselves and start making these informed decisions. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, a lot of information out there. Um, and I use 23andMe. You know, there's a, there's definitely privacy concerns. People often bring up privacy concerns to me. So what I tell them is use a fake name if you want, you know, have it not linked to your name. I've had plenty of people, plenty of clients do that. Uh, they don't care. Uh, have it sent to a different address if you're concerned about privacy. Um, is that that's because the insurance company might say you have a pre-existing condition that, or supposedly? I haven't seen any actual evidence of that happening yet, but that is the concern. The, the other option, if we're going to see more independent options come online, like for example, my boss Dan is actually working with a smaller sequencing company now to get a specific panel of SNPs together that is not going to operate in 23andMe. But I, I think 23andMe is a pretty good option. You know, they give you the reports, their health reports, but they're pretty limited in what they can say because of the FDA and all and regulations like that. But the magic of it is, is that they give you the raw data so you can go look it up on your own. And that's really where it gets exciting. And there's a, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a great website called Self-Hacked. Are you familiar with Self-Hacked? No, no. Oh man, you gotta you gotta check it out. I mean, it, it's run by this guy Joe Cohen, who's just kind of a savant with systems biology, 
and he you know it's like any substance you can think of there's an article listing that has pulled like all of the pubmed references for it and summarized it it's just it's great it's kind of like examine but a little bit more with a biohacker kind of tilt to it but uh you know you can use things like that there there's self-reporting services but i will say that unless you really want to spend the time to understand what you're looking at, it's way more helpful to work with someone who's already spent the time doing that because what will happen, you know, a lot of people will get their 23andMe done and they'll look and see that they have, you know, for example, okay, for example, there's a gene called MTHFR that's become very popular because it heavily influences detox ability of heavy metals and it also heavily influences um uh, your ability to like synthesize neurotransmitters it's kind of a central piece in the one carbon metabolism very basic kind of methylation cycle and people will see that they have the variant for this gene that you know shows reduced enzyme efficiency and you'll see these forums with people just thinking it's the end of the world like they have to focus on that one gene and and do that and so it can be very easy to kind of take a myopic view when you're kind of looking at the stuff on your own and just think, Oh my God, I've got all these negative variants. What am I going to do? Uh, it, you know, I've seen, I've seen anxiety, it really be anxiety provoking for some people. So, you know, take it, take some of what's out there with a grain of salt, I would say. And there's a genetic find- variant out there that, that it, it would help if you smoked a joint before you looked at your genetics data. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Probably. I would say I would say, you know, find a practitioner. Uh, more doctors are incorporating this into their understanding. And, you know, if you have a doctor and you bring this information to them and their response is, well, I don't know what this is or I don't have time to look into it. Find another doctor because there is uh, there are plenty of people who are willing to, you know, add this information to their repertoire. And it's it's really where the future is going. And that's how Dan, uh, my mentor, kind of got into it is because he had clients coming to him saying, hey, I looked this stuff up. You know, what do you think? And, you know, back in, I guess, 2008, when he started doing this, he said, I have no idea. I'll look into it. You know, and it, it became kind of his whole platform now, seeing the, uh, the power of it. So since you brought up the future, <laughs> I, I have to ask, um, where do you think the most promising avenues of research and implementation are in this area right now and like yeah, maybe specifically in the cannabis research like how do, you know what do you think this research is going to lead to in terms of cultural social change in the way that we relate to this stuff the way that we consume it the way that we understand it how do you how do you see this going because I'm, I'm imagining i mean it's very easy to imagine just like a, a new sort of retail class of cannabis strains that are specifically tailored to people with specific genetic types. But yes. There's got to be so much more going on here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that uh, that's immediately what most people think of. Uh, and actually, that's like the last slide in this presentation is what's the dream, you know, a, a genetic test that can match you with your perfect strain. And I think understanding the dynamics of the endocannabinoid system in a way that allows us to not only pick specific cannabis strains, but understand what other substances are out there that we can stack with cannabis or use instead of to affect these pathways in specific ways. Like, for example, uh, green tea extract also activates certain aspects of the cannabinoid uh, uh, endocannabinoid system. And there's all these other substances that interact with it in more subtle ways uh, that aren't necessarily psychoactive. And I think this type of genetic research is really going to give us uh, a better picture of how we can modulate and use the endocannabinoid system in ways that don't necessarily require cannabis, right? Like it's like, that's the, the impetus for discovering the system, right? Like, or discover, you know, we didn't know about that. We even had a cannabinoid system until the early nineties and it wouldn't have been discovered had, you know, we not known the structure of THC most likely. So, you know, you, with, with that in mind, you know, I think, we're going to see a lot of different treatment modalities that utilize this as a piece in it. And, you know, so that's once on the treating specific conditions, understanding how people might be predisposed to have different uh, levels of cannabinoids and receptors and that kind of thing. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a gene called FAAH, and it codes for an enzyme of the same name. And that enzyme breaks down anandamide uh, in the body. And 
they're in the brain specifically. Uh, and anandamide is one of your main endogenous cannabinoids that you produce. When they discovered it, they named it after the Sanskrit word for bliss because yeah. <laughs> it induced these bliss-like effects in the rats they were studying. But there's a but this this molecule breaks down anandamide, so people with more FAAH have lower levels of anandamide naturally, and vice versa, uh, where people with less FAAH have more anandamide and the people that have more anandamide are just in general uh shown to be less anxious and have a better stress response but interestingly enough they have a much lower preference for cannabis use and there's a study looking at the subjective response to cannabis with these faah variants and People with the AA variant of FAAH that uh, have the higher anandamide, they reported actually being less, like, they were, their happiness level went down after smoking as compared to the other variant, which goes up in the opposite direction. Like, you see this graph that's just like these two lines crossing in opposite directions over 60 minutes. And you, if you conceptualize that, that, you know, where some people that have lower levels of these endogenous cannabinoids, when you add the THC and all the, you know, other things in, in cannabis in, uh, it kind of balances that out. Whereas people that have enough of it already, it might be overactivating that and causing them to have a negative response. So that's just an example to look at as we get more and more of these, you know, studies and, and research and, and, and really, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of the citizen science movement. Like we don't have to wait for these types of studies. Like if you have your 23 and me done, look up these genes, you can go to my website and watch this webinar I did. And I have all the slides available with all of these gene identification numbers. You can go look all this stuff up yourself and then start to say, Hey, does this, does this match up? And as we begin to have these conversations amongst ourselves, it starts to broaden the playing field a bit in terms of how we can move forward with this thing. Because I've got plenty of ideas for cool studies I'd like to see, you know, especially, uh, interestingly enough, I was, I have not dug into this research as thoroughly as I'd like to yet, but the influence of, uh, time dynamics on the endocannabinoid system. So how do, you know, our receptors and endocannabinoids shift over a day, over, over a year or lifetime, those kind of things. And as we begin to look and get a better picture of that, maybe we'll come up with ideas on what is the optimal dosing frequency for people, you know, in terms of how, where their endocannabinoid system is from the beginning, what happens when you add something in, what happens when you add, when you don't and wait a certain period of time. And as you see these dynamics shift and move over time, like where does that go? And I think that's, that's really fascinating to me. And then how do you use that in concert with, you know, treating specific conditions for people and how do you use it in a wellness sense to potentially optimize just people's sense of well-being and health and those types of things? Because what's pretty clear is like, CBD, just as an example, another isolated cannabinoid, like has radically changed people's lives. You know, everything from, you know, seizures to to cancer to people reporting just, you know, they feel less anxious and that kind of thing. But again, like I've also heard people say, yeah, CBD doesn't do anything for me. I tried it. I didn't notice a difference. So, you know, how can we better predict those things? And then for the people who, you know, maybe CBD didn't work for them, how do we tell them, well, hey, here's another cannabinoid that based on your genetics might be better for you and, you know, not let them get to a get to a place where they just write it off altogether because it's it's lumped into the same category. So there's there's a weird tension going on in all of this between, you know, you talking about the future of this in a way that is very much about the isolation and extraction of individual chemical agents and their properties and being able to isolate them from the cannabis plant and that ecosystem of phytochemicals. But then there's also this whole thing about, you know, the need to regard and evaluate all of this stuff within a complex systems context yes. is getting even more and more obviously necessary. And so there's this strange balance that uh, Richard Doyle talks about in Darwin's pharmacy where, you know, by extracting something out of its original phytochemical ecosystem, we haven't actually removed the ecosystem. We've just replaced the plant ecosystem with a laboratory equipment ecosystem <laughs> and that you know there's like all these tubes and vials and beakers and electrical currents and stuff and and that it really you know the 
for example, like a these various efforts to create prescription cannabis based like the THC pill and like this kind yeah. of stuff. It's kind of franken, right? Because it's it's in that space where people are are confused about like we're still on the cusp of understanding what it really means to balance that tension between the need for increased specificity and the need to for an increased attention to the like overhead or orbital view of the whole thing. Yeah, no, spot on. And, and let me back up. And, and I know I, I kind of went down the road of talking about isolated things. But in general, I'm probably more of a proponent of looking at the whole plant, uh, you know, as a, as a system that has its own inherent wisdom in a way. And, you know, the, the tension there. For me, it, you can loosen the tension by by looking at it almost from an alchemical perspective of saying, well, in order to, you know, put to understand what's happening, we have to separate out all these things first. We need to, you know, how can we how can we understand the big picture if we don't even know what all the parts are doing? And I think we're, we're in that phase right now in terms of our understanding where uh, in order to put things back together and see how they all interact, we need to first just see what what everything's doing on its own, you know. And I think we're going to see just a we're, we're going to see those those pieces get put back together. I, I very much hope just in the same way that like, well, how can we understand what uh, how, how cannabis affect memory in individual people if we don't look at those individual components and how it's doing it, where obviously that COMT gene is not the only thing that affects it. In this presentation, I talk about two or three other genes that affect memory as well, including the CNR1 gene, which is the cannabinoid receptor gene itself, receptor one that's in mostly the brain. But uh, by looking at all those pieces individually, then you can look at them in a network and really get a better feel for how they're each contributing to that larger picture. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned at the beginning of this call uh, that there was a sort of promising glimmer of bringing these two fields together, bringing the epigenetics coaching and the cannabis genomic stuff and then also the you know the human gene sequencing and interaction stuff so like where is on the near term where do you see the most exciting research and implementation like like who's got a cool lab where is the stuff where's where's it happening yeah that's a really good question i i am actually only beginning to get connected with uh people that are really doing the research so i I don't have a good question for that but i think just to start where we're at uh you know cbd has kind of become the the big star in the cannabinoid realm and i I think look you know looking at studies with genetic variants and how we respond to cbd is going to be a really big up-and-coming thing here because it's going to allow you know, people to really make more informed decisions about whether that's going to be something that will help them specifically for whatever they're trying to, to do, rather than, you know, have the same supplement aisle dilemma of maybe this will help, maybe it won't. I think I think CBD studies are going to be the most important thing that happens in the near future here for, for that. And then also on the issue of legalization, CBD is such a Trojan horse. Like Texas has been struggling and struggling with cannabis legalization and not with CBD. That's somehow, you know, that that's the like the bow wave of all of this. And, you know, it's it's interesting, um, the cultural interpretation, like how, you know, if you want to look at this, maybe this is stretching the metaphor a little thin, but like there's a sort of mimetic receptivity also to like certain cultures you know that have been smoking hash for thousands of years and it's totally acceptable and and then you've got this other culture that hasn't been smoking for a hundred years and so it's uh there's like a cultural endocannabinoid (laughs) response matrix oh yeah you know well, just just to you know, just to look at it from another perspective in the same way, like that first gene I was talking about, CYP two C nine, the one that some people get way too high from edibles because they just don't break down THC as well. Uh, that gene is very very rare in Asian and African populations. So people that are descended from uh, you know Asian and African descent, I think it's around one or two percent in that population. But if people descend from European population, it's about fifteen percent. So 
you know, for whatever evolutionary reason that caused it to, uh, you know, stratify in that way. I'm sure there was some survival advantage that was, you know, given because that that um, it doesn't just it's not just responsible for THC that also actually influences non-steroidal and anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. So the people with the slow metabolizer variant also have a increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding from ibuprofen. And yeah, so so like it, it, you see, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it is a cultural thing that people are genetically wired to respond differently to it, and that might influence the cultural perception of the plant itself. And then you can you can tie these things into all these other factors because there, there's, you know, sometimes you'll see these patterns where one variant of one gene is linked to another one, uh, you know, another variant in this gene called linkage disequilibrium. I'm sure you're aware, but the that has you, to do just for listeners that has to do with you're talking about the the relative distances between genes on the chromosome and the likelihood that they will they will be uh, like segregated together during meiosis uh more more like say uh you know with this uh cumt gene you can either have the gg ag or aa variant and if you're a gg you're you're also 90 percent likely to have this certain other allele type in another place. And so you get these linkages between these different things that can lead to different traits. So just off the top of my head, what, what, you know, this is a totally far-fetched theory, but what, what if people that were inclined personality wise, because of whatever gene genetic predisposition to seek positions of power in Western society also are genetically predisposed to have poor reactions to cannabis? Because I mean, that certainly seems like the case to me just based on how, you know, the people that are in power have thought about this. Right. And you see you see this in terms of uh, reinforcement of neurochemistry. And it's like, of course, you can't I, you can't break everything down to neurochemistry. There's this, the intrinsic, you know, internal world, you know, that doesn't necessarily correlate. But you see predispositions and tendencies. So could people's poor response to cannabis also link up with with other things that might influence them to go out and warn everyone about it? You know what I mean? Like, it's a pretty interesting kind of thing to think about in, in this downstream network of potential reactions and responses that could influence the entire cultural perception of a plant based on, you know, some influential person's previous experience that's handed down for generations through legend and myth about Mm. whatever, you know? I just had this silly vision of present day David and high school David collaborating on a Joker level project where you put some uh, CRISPR gene drive in the water supply <laughs> that makes everybody genetically compatible and desirous of <clears throat> cannabis. And so you're just like, well, it doesn't work for everyone, but now it does. <laughs> Genetic <Yeah>. terrorism. <laughs> You know, it's really funny you bring that up because as I've been doing this research and, you know, as I was putting together the webinar and everything, I was my, my 15 year old self was just laughing so hard that this is this is what I've made a career out of now. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I totally did do my uh, AP bio bioethics paper on cannabis. And, you know, it's been a long term theme. And I, I think you'll you'll appreciate this too, Michael. I've, I've been meaning to mention this to you at, at some point, but so you know, for the for AP Bio in high school, you have to do the the AP test at the end, and that was I guess 2006. I was first exposed to the work of um, Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose and the orchestrated objective, the, their work OR theory. Mm-hmm. And like, it just made, like, I was the quantum, so mad. The quantum mechanical model for consciousness in microtubules in the brain for people who mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And they were kind of the seminal folks who, who initially posited that that could be a, a thing. And I remember coming across that and being so pissed that that is that was not a part of my biology class in high school. And so I instead of answering the essay questions on the AP bio final test, I wrote this tirade against the current institution of what I perceive to be the man, you know, the man like at that time. And I, and I, I remember there was this line, I ended it just by saying, you know, something like the field of biology is at a dead end unless we incorporate the quantum effects into our understanding of how these things work. And looking back on that now, you know, it was me being a dick, you know, me just being like a rebellious kid, you know, who just wanted to like, ah, this isn't, this isn't the right thing that I'm being taught, like, you know, yeah. pretty much how I 
everything else I felt like. But just looking back on that as sort of a precursor to all this stuff, you know, that I'm looking into now, I, I feel just for whatever reason, innately primed to kind of go after this. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I can I can relate to that. I wrote one of the timed essays for, in my AP English class, you know, a, a rehearsal for the test. It was, I think it was John, I was on John Donne's poem, Batter My Heart, O Three Person God. And it was, you know, like, we're looking at, what was that, like 16th century, you know, kind of like proto-romantic, you know, self-flagellation poetry. And we were supposed to write about this. And I wrote my my timed response in uh, iambic pentameter <laughs> like rhyming couplets and yeah. the teacher sent it to the ap board and asked them what they would have done with this which you know it succeeded in achieving all of the the essay writing goals the argumentative goals of the assignment but was stylistically like a total show off prick move and they said that they would have actually flunked it they would have disqualified it as a response on the ap exam so the teacher kept my essay and said kids don't do this like, oh that's hilarious <laughs> don't fly too high or you'll get you'll get slapped down by the ap board <laughs> so, anyway really i can funny. respond to that that you know yeah. i can the rebelliousness is mutual yeah well you know what's funny is i actually got a passing grade on that like whoever read it was like yeah okay fine <laughs> so you you've outcompeted graham hancock in speaking truth to power <laughs> i don't know i don't know about that <laughs> he's, he's pretty much just on a permanent quest uh on that front i feel like yeah well dude it's been so good to have you on the show i think this is really vital and and liberating literacy that we're just right on the cusp of and it's really important i think the work that you're doing and i'm excited to see how it unfolds really appreciate you having me on and kind of giving me a platform to talk about this stuff because i too feel like it's just really critical in expanding the conversation to incorporate a you know more realistic and scientific viewpoint and it really kind of cuts through you know some of the ingrained dogma no matter again what side of the aisle you sit on it just gives us more more tools in our tool belt to really have a you know informed conversation and um, i'm really happy to be able to, to do that you know kind of play that that part so where can people find your work like how can people stay up on your research and possibly even like connect with you about this stuff yeah, so uh, you can go to my website, www.david-krantz.com. All of my articles that I've written on this topic are up there. You can watch uh, an hour-long uh, webinar recording that I did that covers all this stuff in depth and also gives a little bit background, a bit of background on the genetic side just to you know really set the stage for this information. And, you know, <laughs> we didn't talk about any of the other things I do, but... Um, you know, I also if you I also make music. And by the way, Michael, I, I've great music. I really, yeah, I really appreciate just just seeing how you have taken all of these things that you are innately curious about and turned them into this this larger just collection of things that Michael Garfield does. And I, I really want to applaud you for kind of not caring if it necessarily make sense to everyone all the time why you're so interested in all these things but you're just naturally you know curious about it and, and I, I i've been thinking about you lately as i'm kind of crafting this platform of all these random things i do and how i can kind of congeal them together well you have yeah. a job whereas i'm unhirable now because of that. people look at that and they're like what the fuck so like you're smart you're smart to keep them partitioned i think a little bit yeah, but they're becoming less and more partition. They're just leaking into each other slowly <laughs> over time, like like some kind of like uh, like when you mix wet ink and oil to get the oil paints together, you know, and they just kind of form that nice uh, ooze of whatever it is. I, I feel more inclined to just let that happen. But anyway, so I, I make music. Uh, you can look me up as Few Texture. I also run a company called Visionary Magnets, which Michael was kind enough to uh, sort of let us be a sponsor uh, earlier in the year when we were doing a Kickstarter. But if you like uh, hilarious magnetic poetry that kind of skewers the new age fluff 
mentality, you know, you might like that too. If, if you're a fan of, of future fossils, you, you'll probably like that too. I'm just going to never go know from the visionary magnets, Instagram feed that the guy behind this project <laughs> is a visionary geneticist, but it's true. I wanted to tell you, dude, that you gave me a couple extra visionary magnets kits to give away. Mm-hmm. And I gave a kit to Duncan Trussell at Burning oh, Man. Good. And I gave a kit to Chris Ryan of Tangentially Speaking. Oh, the, cool. You know, and, and co-author of Sex at Dawn. They both got Visionary Magnets kits. And Duncan immediately opened his, and there was a big metal sheet of for some reason in his camp. So he immediately was just like, oh, perfect. This will go on our... And they were like playing with them all week at Burning Man. Oh, so. perfect. That, that's great. I might send him a message and, and see uh, see how, he, how he's doing, if any of them made him back from Burning Man. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. But anyway, yeah, oh, you're, you're a very diverse and talented dude, and, and I encourage people to check out all of that stuff. Uh, Few Texture is awesome music. Visionary Magnets is a like acupuncture relief of the frustration that I experience in, in festival world. And, uh, and obviously this genetics research is, is super important to preventing my next schizoidal freak out. So, <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know, they, they all Thank happen you. from time to time. Thanks for letting me come on and, and do this. I, I love the podcast. I love all the guests you've had. I mean, I'm honored to be in the canon of, of those folks. It's, uh, it's, pretty pretty amazing thanks dude have a great day yeah you too thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did future fossils is part of the mind pod network along with third eye drops the astral hustle synchronicity podcast and an oodle of other fascinating programs i encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils, including special episodes on the mythology and history of science fiction, robot sex, visionary art, non-dual philosophy, science journalism, the future of mobility and housing, the future of work, magic, the future of education, music as a force of healing... The list goes on and on. And many of those episodes will be going up first and unedited for Patreon supporters. So if you want to hear this show the way it's recorded and not the way it's shared, then hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Again, thanks for listening and have a most excellent eon.